0: So over the last couple of weeks we've been going through a series of messages and the intent of those messages has been to kind of reframe, help us re-envision our understanding of what it means to be a part of the local church. Two weeks ago we tried to hone in on the definition of what is church because when we use the word church in our modern language it brings to mind several different definitions. We could mean a building, we could be describing an event, Or an organization or institution. But in the scriptures, that word church was used primarily referring to a group, a community of believers who were united both to God and to one another. Then last week, we peeked a little bit closer at the characteristics, the nature of that community. It isn't just that we have something in common, because there are plenty of groups out there or organizations that share some level of commonality. What we saw in the church, or what we ought to see in the church, is a rich diversity that cuts across every conceivable human-constructed separation, whether it be geographic, economic, social, racial, right? All those diversities reflect the grandeur of God's plan for the world. And god has called people as we saw looked at last week from revelation 7 people from every tongue every tribe every language together this morning i want to focus on what i'm calling the rhythms of the church right if the first week was addressing maybe the what question and the second week was addressing the who question maybe think of this morning a little bit as considering the how as i said we just as i just said we've been united together through the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. So when we gather, what ought that to look like? Now, I'm a big fan of music. As someone who is very thought-oriented, often it is music that can help me connect the dots to the emotional parts of myself. Music can speak to us even if we don't recognize it in our direct conscious level. For example, in my humble opinion, The greatest movie trilogy ever made was the cinematic adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. One of the things that the musical director did brilliantly, and, and fun fact, he won three Oscars, two Golden Globes, and three Grammys for, is that the different cultures, the different races of Middle Earth, the different settings all have their own unique and independent musical themes. You know, one of the earliest themes, musical themes that you encounter is the Shire, the home of the hobbits. But even when the characters are far from the light and joy of the shire, you might still experience the undertones of their homeland. So you have Frodo and Sam slogging through the devastated land of Mordor. But when there's this sense of hope in the midst of desolation, they'll they'll draw you back to the emotion by playing the the theme of the shire. Now, I have have a point in all this other than my, my fandom of Lord of the Rings. Good film or, you know, musical theater will introduce musical elements to us, right? In musical theater, that's the overture. They play like themes, all the different themes at the beginning so that you kind of pick these out and can recognize them as they revisit them later in the production in an effort to evoke certain feelings that you first experienced when you heard it. This morning, my suggestion is that that's kind of what church is supposed to be like. When we participate together in this weekly event that is church worship, we're taught certain rhythms and melodies that we're meant to carry with us through our week. In this regard, I'm highly indebted to the work of Tish Harrison Warren, who wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. In it, she describes how the Sunday morning worship experience that worship set is not meant to be the pinnacle, the high point of our week. It's not meant to be our performance, if you will. Instead, it's supposed to be our practice. It's the place where we learn those rhythms, we rehearse them so that we can bring them to our performance, which is remaining united to God living out his kingdom, when we walk outside of these doors, right? Our performance is the, uh, the, the six days of the week after this that we're rehearsing for here. Using one of Sky Jatani's doodles from his book, and Sarah, this is actually, I think, the second of the doodles, uh, and, and these come from his book, What If Jesus, I think I can actually have it here. Yeah, what if, nope, not that one this one there. Yeah. What if Jesus was serious about the church? And he reminds us, right, that the, the purpose of our Sunday service is not to experience this great production, this great experience on the stage, but it's in, instead it's to seek an encounter of Jesus in our, in our individual lives as a corporate community, right? Christianity is meant to be more than just a mountaintop experience where we elicit some feelings by, you know, a good polished production, And so this morning, we're going to look at identifying what some of those rhythms are as they're found in the scriptures. Now, I do want to note that there is no one-size-fits-all formula. The Bible doesn't tell us precisely what this ought to look like. As a result, there is some flexibility for our worship to be reflective of the cultural diversity that might be present. It doesn't make sense for Christians in Thailand to sing Shine, Jesus, Shine in English. That doesn't make sense. Any more than it makes sense for us as, you know, 21st century Americans to have our services in Latin. If I was up here speaking Latin, which I don't know, I'm sure, maybe one of you would surprise me, but I'm sure none of you would have any idea what I'm actually saying right now. You know, those three years of Latin in high school probably just weren't going to cut it. The Bible is not a manual for us of how to run a church. It's not a blueprint it's a story. And in this story, we read the journeys of the saints who went before us, striving to encounter, striving to serve God, sometimes with great success, and sometimes with desperate need of correction. And this is largely what the New Testament letters contain words of encouragement from Peter or Paul for what the church is doing well, and places where those authors are challenging the audience where they're missing the mark of what it meant to live as a group of Christians. So before I get to those elements, I want to remind us that the purpose of this is not to give us a step-by-step guide for how to run church, but a reminder of what our focus in church ought to be. We come here not to get something, not to get a feeling, but to get someone. We come not looking to have our emotions or minds prickled, but to honor and recognize God. I'm a big fan of podcasts. I know I highlight a bunch of them. Another one, if you're interested, is one called, it's a couple years old now, but it's called This Cultural Moment, and it's hosted by John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers. And in one of the episodes, Mark describes worship simply as focus. He says that that which we focus on is what we worship because that word worship literally means to ascribe worth. Now, there's all kinds of ramifications to this, right? If we accept his definition that worship is focus, then it probably means that we worship that little glowing rectangle in our pockets, our cell phones. We probably worship the stealers. We worship our bank accounts. I think he's spot on in this, and and, you know, that's a rabbit trail. I'm not going to follow it this morning, but How do we take our focus and redirect it to God? Ascribing our worth to Him as we go through our rhythms. All right, let's get to the Bible. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to look at one verse. (laughs) It's a pretty short one, too. It comes from Acts chapter 2. So, Acts chapter 2, probably about halfway, a little past halfway down. Acts chapter 2 is uh, many consider the, the birthplace, the birthday of the church. It's Pentecost Sunday. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven and kind of charged his disciples with some tasks. And he says, wait until power comes upon you. Like we sang this morning, not by might or power of ourselves, but from the Spirit of God. They're all hanging out in this room and the Holy Spirit descends upon them and they're speaking all these languages and people from, uh, from all various places who are traveling, you know, all the, all the foreigners coming back to this pilgrimage in Jerusalem. And they're understanding, they're hearing the gospel in their own language. And then Peter gives a very lengthy sermon. And you know thousands were saved, followed Jesus that day. That's kind of like the birth of the church. So the verse that comes next, it's going to be Acts 2.42. And I would say this is, there is no formula in the Bible for how to run church. But if there was a formula, this is kind of the closest thing we have to those rhythms of the early church. And they, the apostles, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Again, we can't say with certainty that this is precisely what the practice of church, if you think of church as an event, looked like in those first years after Jesus' resurrection, but it shows, if nothing else, what they valued. And in in this passage, we see kind of four rhythms that were consistent that they brought, right, those melodies or rhythms. Teaching, fellowship, what's listed as the breaking of bread, and prayer. You know, over the last couple of weeks, I've used some of these Skagitani from his book Doodles, and people said they liked them, so I'm just going to cram as many of them in as I can. Here's one, kind of shows this breakdown on the left of the four items that we just read uh, in in, uh, Acts 2.42, uh, and then on the other, contrasting of what our services typically look like? Now, I will say, I'm a big fan of Sky Jitani. I do think he's being a little uncharitable here uh, in this because, as I said before, I don't think this passage is meant to be a formula. Just because they're all listed does not necessarily mean that each one was, you know, given 25% of the time of, of their worship. But his point, I think, is well received. Uh, we often skew what we should be focusing on during our services. So let's start with teaching. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. There's a couple of these that are pretty self-explanatory. But one of the early rhythms of the worship in the church was teaching those things that Jesus said and did. The first disciples acknowledged that there was something special about what Jesus had to say. Even, Even the people who didn't follow him kind of acknowledged that like, this guy's pretty smart. Like, he, he, he's saying things that we find con, kind of confusing, but uh, also is, uh, is kind of brilliant at the same time. There was a time uh, in Jesus' ministry where people were leaving him in droves because he was saying some, he was teaching some really hard things. This is John chapter 6. And Jesus goes to Peter and says, are you going to jump ship as well? Peter responds, where else are we going to go? And then he follows, you have the words of of life. He acknowledged that there was something special to the things Jesus said and did, and so that, you know, they wanted to pass on his teachings to learn and live by. Now, that event happens before the resurrection, right? After Jesus rose from the dead, it was a game-changer. Just reinforced that Jesus wasn't just some moral teacher. He wasn't just some really smart dude, but was God in the flesh, One of the final commands that he gave his disciples can be found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We're not going to go there this morning, but feel free to go there. It's often called the Great Commission. And what he instructed his disciples to do is to make more disciples, more followers from all nations. And one of the ways in which they were to do that was to teach. He told them, keep passing on the things that I have taught, the things that he has done. So here in our services, we teach the Bible the words of Jesus, the other special revelation that comes to us from God. And as we go through these biblical passages, so we, hopefully we see these, some themes and texts that we can carry with us as a framework of who God is, who we are, or who he says we are, and what we ought to do. Right? That we, we learn that rhythm here so that when we walk out those doors, we can continue to reflect on those principles in our life. And so that rhythm of teaching Comes starts here during our service and then continues throughout the week. Let's look at the second rhythm, fellowship. The word fellowship, this concept comes from the Greek word koinonia, can be described as holding something in common. Actually, fun fact: the uh, Greek New Testament is a, a type of Greek. Right? You, you know, think about English. We have different dialects of English: Old English versus Modern English. Right? It was called ko- it was called Koine Greek. Comes from the same. It was the common Greek that everyone spoke. So koinonia, fellowship, holding something in common. And this is what I shared last week regarding the who of the body of Christ, that we share a unity together. We're held together by the redemption that's been worked on our behalf through Christ. Last week I focused on the diversity of who was included in the fellowship. And I tried to help us separate the idea of unity and uniformity Unity is, we all have this same source of Jesus, where uniformity is more along the lines of forming these homogeneous groups. Again, I don't want to spend too much time restating these themes, but I want to add one more layer to this concept of fellowship, something we see quite often in the scriptures, hospitality. Now, what we see in hospitality, when we see that word in our English Bibles, it's a translation from a word that literally means love of strangers. That's what the Greek means. Our language of hospital comes from the same root as hospitality in the Latin. And hospital literally means a home for strangers. So when we practice fellowship in the body of Christ, we're to have in mind what it means to create a hospitable environment for those who may be strangers to us. So what this means is that church, while it is about getting together, holding things in common, It's not just about a place that we get together with our friends, but how are we caring for? What first impressions are we providing to those visitors, those who might be outside of our fold? When we take this rhythm of fellowship that we learn from the church and implement it in our lives, it means that we learn to love the stranger. We invite them into places of warmth and kindness in the kingdom, maybe in our homes, but ultimately into the kingdom of God inviting them there. All right, let's keep moving. The third element is the one that I wanted to spend the majority of our time this morning on, because it's something we don't get to talk about too often. All right. so the third one, uh, it, it's listed as um, breaking of bread. Sky calls it the table, and it's a reference to sacraments or the ordinances, depending on your tradition we come out of the Protestant tradition, and so there are two that are observed. Communion, which is that table idea, and baptism. These sacraments are symbols, but symbols are meant to point us to something beyond themselves. Communion, and I would suggest baptism as well, are both signs meant to point to God's covenant with us and our covenant that we make with Him. Just a couple months ago, while we were going through those early chapters in Genesis, we looked at the flood narrative of, of Noah, and we saw, right after the flood waters had receded, the rainbow. It was the sign, it was the symbol of the covenant. It's more than just this kind of sentimental, beautiful image of light in the sky, but it was a reminder, reminding us of God's patience with us that even in our continued and perpetual sin, He's not going to judge us the same way with a flood again. Next time we return to the biblical narrative, when we get back to Genesis in a couple months, we're going to see circumcision. Right? Circumcision in, to Abraham was a sign, it was a symbol meant to point to the promise that God had made of the covenant that Abraham would have descendants beyond number. So too, Jesus has instituted a meal as a symbol to remind us of our union with God and with others. Think about that for a minute. Think about what a meal communicates. It represents belonging, friendship, It's the recounting of stories and jokes over some great food. That's what the breaking of bread in the early church represented. It was believers gathering around a table to celebrate and remember what God had done for them as a people, to celebrate redemption, In a way, the meal was not just about remembering, you know, like when we think about, when I think of remembering, at least, it's like a history textbook where we remember facts. It wasn't just remembering certain facts, certain events that had happened in the past, but it was an acknowledgement that those facts, those events in the past had ramifications for us now, an acknowledgement of how we are experiencing God's redemption today in our lives. I'm not sure where in the process of church history this act of remembrance and celebration was moved from this rich meal of fellowship to, you know, purely fixating on the elements themselves, the bread, the wine. I mean, here at church, it's something we celebrate once a month with what tastes kind of like, I mean, you guys have all had it, it tastes a little bit like a stale wafer. You've got like a little thimble of juice. It's a symbol. As a symbol, it still accomplishes its purpose. It's harking us back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But I wonder: have we eroded some of its potential, some of its potency, by by practicing it in this manner? And you know, I find this this uh, here's another doodle from Sky that I find to be a little comical. Right? The Eucharist, right? Communion in some tri- uh, traditions is called the Eucharist, which is the Greek word for Thanksgiving. And he points out that it doesn't mean small bread and drink. It's not what Eucharist means. It's not a holy snack. I remember as a kid, it's like if I hadn't had my snack before and I was glad it was Communion Sunday because at least I had something to put in my stomach. That was a misunderstanding of what the Eucharist, communion was supposed to be. He says also not a somber memorial, but Thanksgiving, a celebration of what God has done. Now before we move on, I want to make one more point about communion. Here's here's the last doodle I'm going to share this morning. And I think this is brilliant. Because Skye is arguing that the table of communion should be open to everyone. He compares the openness, and I'm going to say some stuff in a minute that I think might be controversial for some of you, but bear with me. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. But he compares the openness of the table with the openness of the ministry of Jesus when it came to Jesus, all were welcomed to participate together. Jesus regularly ate with those who the world would have said was unworthy. They were invited to participate together in his ministry. What I like about this image also is that it contrasts the invitation of Jesus through the church versus, right, come, versus our American works righteous culture, because the world tells us, you've got to climb, You've got to fight tooth and nail. You've got to earn what you get. Jesus merely says, come as you are. Because the blessings of Jesus are not earned. They can never be earned. They are a gift that we're given. The prophet Isaiah says something similar. This is Isaiah 55, 1-2. It says, come everyone. I I feel like there's such foreshadowing to the... uh, um, Foreshadowing to the table, to communion, of what Jesus was going to institute in this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Why are you investing in all the stuff that isn't going to fill you up when, you know, slogging through the, the day to do it, when God has his hands open and says, come to me, right? Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, come, and I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. I'll give you richness of food. When I was in seminary, one of the things that was taught to us was what they call fencing the table. And in essence, this meant that as a pastor, you had a responsibility to erect some sort of like figurative barrier around the elements of communion, around the bread and the, the juice, reminding everyone that they were only for those, that was reserved only for those who followed Jesus. That right? if you were a visitor who didn't know Jesus, like feel free to watch and observe us, but you can't participate. And I know for me that always struck me as kind of awkward. Like how do you say that? Like hey, you know we want to show you all this great hospitality, but there's this like really special thing we're going to do in the service, but you're not allowed to participate in it. Right? I have a tendency to agree with Sky in, in his, and again maybe I'm biased because I didn't like the awkwardness of that. I could be wrong. I'll, I'll fully acknowledge that. But if the table is a recollection and a celebration of Jesus' ministry. It ought to represent and reflect what his ministry looked like on the earth. But this idea of fencing the table comes from one particular passage, I would argue, that there's one passage. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 to 29, which says this, and this is a serious passage. We need to take it seriously. Paul writes this, "'Whoever therefore eats the bread,' or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment, eats and drinks judgment upon him or herself." Paul is cautioning the Christians that if you eat this meal, if you participate in this meal in an unworthy manner, now we hear unworthy manner, and I've shared the last couple of weeks, we go immediately, right, because we're we're saturated in this individualistic culture, that we go to to thinking, all right, all right, what's my heart condition? What unconfessed sin do I have? We think unworthy manner automatically goes to like personal piety, personal purity in that. And so therefore, if we kind of have these sins, and if you're not a Christian, doubly of course you have these sins because you haven't experienced the forgiveness of Jesus in that. Therefore, if we consume the uh, communion elements in that way, we're liable to the judgment of God. Uh, Paul even says in the next verse that there's some folks in their congregation who have gotten ill, who have died as a result of this. So clearly this is something that should be taken seriously. But in light of this passage, we build these barriers. That I described a minute ago. But I'm convinced that Paul's motives in sharing this word of caution is not about individual purity as we typically assume, but it is more to do with corporate unity. I think that what Paul is getting to is that to eat and drink in an unworthy manner means to create factions, to create social divisions in the church. Now, if you read through that letter of 1 Corinthians, you see that that's something that the Corinthian church had a problem with, right? They they had, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They had these, like, different factions of, like, who their megachurch pastor was, And they kind of had issues, tension and fellowship, conflict as a result of that. You know, we see elsewhere in that that chapter, in chapter uh, 11, that they regularly struggled with doing this with faithfulness. Right? To, to eat in an unworthy manner, I think, meant that you know, the rich would go ahead and eat and leave the poor to come second. Or the Jewish Christians wouldn't sit at the table with the Gentile Christians, exactly what we see Peter doing in uh, Galatians 2 when Paul calls him out on it, puts them on blast. right? Maybe to modernize it a little bit, I think eating taking these elements in an unworthy manner of communion would be like forcing people of color to participate in worship from the balcony or having a sign that said, no blacks allowed in your church, which was common during the Jim Crow era. That, I think, is what Paul's talking about when he says, don't eat it or drink in an unworthy manner. So, we have to think about, what does that mean for us? How might we be creating barriers that say, you know what, you're not good enough for me to, to share in this fellowship with you. If the meal, which was a celebration of Christ's reconcilia- reconciling work, if the meal was meant to reflect the way that God has reconciled us to him and to one another, right, then participating in these elements, whether it be racial or socioeconomical, lines drawn, function as a rejection of everything that communion was supposed to stand for. Let's move on to our last element uh, in our Acts chapter 2 passage, and it's prayer. Once again, I think this is a rhythm that is self-explanatory. I hope that most of us recognize that prayer is meant to be a point of connection with God. As it pertains to prayer, the place that we need to regularly check ourselves is are we praying with God to get something, or are we doing it in a desire to commune with him. Are we just going to God? Do we find in your prayer lives, do you go into God just saying, like, God, I feel like I'm in a pickle. Bail me out. God, I need this. God, I need this. God, I need... God wants to hear it, right? He, he, I mean, Jesus talks about the love that God has, right? If, if you're, you know, if you're a parent and your child asks for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a stone. That's, that's foolish. We don't do that how much more so is God's love for us in that? God wants to hear those things, but that's not ultimately what prayer is supposed to be, right? That that, that type of prayer is treating God as a vending machine, that it's like, all right, I've put in my change, I've I've said the things I'm supposed to be, a five, all right, God, deliver. The ultimate purpose of prayer is to commune with him, to know and be known by him all of these elements, all four of these elements, the purpose is to create a rhythm in our lives where we regularly seek to connect with God. If the only time that you're looking to be tethered to God is for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, I'm going to suggest you're doing it wrong. Right? The purpose of worship, the purpose of being here is not to get some feeling, not to satisfy some obligation, but to get to encounter the living God. Sir Alec Guinness uh, was the actor who portrayed uh, Obi-Wan, Kenobi, in the original Star Wars trilogy. He says this about worship, and I I like the definition. He says, Worship is a rather nonsensical gesture of love. Worship is a rather nonsensical gesture of love. Because love is not about quantifying what we get or give, it doesn't boil down to a formula. It would be a really contrived way to showcase my affection for Sarah if I put limits on what I'm willing to do. Like, I'll show you love by cooking three meals a week, doing dishes four times a week. You know, I'll give you five minutes of my day to share, you know, to connect about what's happening, but that's it. Like, don't ask me for anything more than that. Like, what kind of marriage would that be if I just was, like, putting these really hard, rigid boundaries in that way? Again, boundaries are important. I'm not saying have no boundaries, But if we attempt with God to quantify every, you know, iota of time, like, God, I'm giving you this time, an hour on Sunday, you get five minutes of my time in the morning or or bed, but that's it. I think there's a reflection of, maybe we're not loving God the way that we ought to. Worship is about learning these rhythms that we discussed this morning. And it's far from exhaustive. There's probably plenty of other things that you could add to this list. But learning these rhythms in the church community and carrying them with us from this place, right? finding situations in our lives that harken back to what we learn here, bringing the worship of God to our careers, to our families, when we drive in the car, when we sit in the dentist chair, everywhere we go that we can stay in this constant communion with God. One last quote from Sky Gittani, and I think he said it well, and he said, and maybe that's what worship is. It's what happens when God's delight in us inspires our delight in Him, sparking an endless loop of joy between creator and creature, between lover and beloved. Now this week I'm going to give you some questions, some things to dwell on to think about as we continue on the subject. So, as you consider your typical week, where might the rhythms of worship be beneficial to you, to keep you tethered to God, right? Are there there situations you can think of where, man, this is always a stressor, and I always feel like I go off the deep end? You know, know, I know for me, right? Like when I, I don't handle stress real well, and so if I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, I find that I react perhaps a little bit more aggressively than I intend to when my kid asks an innocent question, or maybe makes a mistake that was an accident, And so I need to remember the rest and capacity of, you know, Sabbath rest is a part of those rhythms of God. So anyway, where might be, that's just an example of that. Where might it be that you need to keep some rhythm of worship to keep you tethered to the vitality and goodness of God? Let's think about teaching. Outside of, you know, like a 30-minute sermon on Sundays, where else do you receive insight into the apostles' teaching? May it be a podcast. maybe it be, you know, a, a, a television program reading your scriptures yourself, talking with a mentor, where, where might it be that you're receiving insight into what the apostles taught so that we are directed in our faith? And lastly, this is one I've been thinking about kind of in prepping this, this sermon, right? How might we as a church, I'd welcome, if you think about this and you've got ideas, let me know. How might we as a church reclaim some of the original meaning and potency of communion? Again, I don't think we're, we're not failing at communion. Right. We, we have these elements that remind us, that hearken back to what God has done. So it's serving its purpose, as I said in the message. But I think there's more in it that we could gain. So think about that. How might we reclaim some of these things? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we seek to worship you, we seek to reflect you, uh, not just here, but in the other 167 hours of our week. Lord, no matter what circumstance we are in, may we take the things that we learn here, take the things that we learn in small group, take the things that we learn in our our private, individualized times with you, times of prayer, whatever it might be, God, those touch points that we have with you, where we sit at your feet, where we learn and listen from you, may we take those things with us. So that the times where we feel like we're out on an island or we feel that we're alone, we can be reminded of the truths that you have given us. We can remind, remember the, the fruit of the Spirit that calls us to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Lord, that we can, we can re- be reminded that when we're anxious, to not be anxious about anything, right? that we can go to you in prayer and ha- hand everything over to you knowing that it's not by might and power that we fight these battles, but by your Spirit. Lord, that you go before us, that you go behind us, that you hem us in from the sides. Lord, may our lives continue to to continue to change, continue to grow as we become more and more like the person of Jesus that you've called us to be. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Be with us. In Christ's name. Amen.